Uh, okay, this will be a good experiment. Let's Reagan, your mic versus Brendan, your mic versus me without a mic, just to see what the recording sounds like at the end of the day. Well, you're going to be, people are going to be like, I don't want to listen to Nick. <laughs> they might. They might. <laughs> listen, this is us ripping the band-aid off. Let's just start riffing on this. I have some thoughts. I can play the moderator role. Uh, we can get yeah. into. You trying to get on video though? Oh, I'm not on video. Hang on. Give me one second. Sorry. I thought I was on video already. Nah. I am hot off a DSQ course at Akron, so I am ready to talk. Let's talk about essentially, one, good to see you guys again. This is great that we're doing this. One, two, three, four. It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human. And work. An AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or die. Or video, if not, this is just practice session for us. Just try this yeah, so do we go for video? Is that the one of the aims? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I think if we want, we can go for video and audio. If we hate the way we look in a thing, we can just go for straight audio. I don't think we need to constrain ourselves. I never but, <laughs> have an issue with video stuff. Uh, I'm starting to grow my mullet out, so I'll keep it out of the frame. <laughs> I <laughs> think the mullet's better. It adds character, man. Mullet's dope. Talk to Brittany about it. All right. It. <laughs> so, so you want to get started let's do it yeah let's freaking do it i'm already recording so let's start off the top talking about chat gpt and bard ai um recent news this week is google unveiled their competitor to chat gpt bard ai the funny thing is in the demo and the videos that they released around what bard ai can do it led to false answers when given a question after hours, that led to Google stock dropping 7%. They essentially lost $100 billion overnight. And it kind of makes Microsoft's acquisition of OpenAI, or at least contribution of OpenAI of $10 billion, very small compared to their $100 billion loss. So did you guys get a chance to see Bard AI? And what are your reflections on that? What do you think this means for Google? Yeah, I think like this is definitely the future of search. So any player in the search space is going to have to double down on this and figure it out. Um, I think it's really fascinating. I've been following kind of the monetization conversations around ChatGPT, and it's one of those technologies that has the highest acquisition of users in the shortest period of time um, compared to some of the other large players in the game that saw, you know, user acquisition happen really quickly. So I think that's very fascinating. And the fact on how they're valuing ChatGPT in general, um, I think makes sense. And they're starting to come up with plans that you can pay for like $20, um, like these paid plans, which I think is really fascinating too. Um, and then I also noticed that OpenAI had their own fund. Um, if you go to their website, they have their own fund and they're starting to invest in companies that are utilizing this, you know, generative technology um, in different ways. And so I think it's going to be one of those like fundamental user experience elements that most tools have incorporated. I think Google will eventually figure it out, you know, yeah. but I mean, the papers have been released and they're at least for GPT-1 and 2. And so they, you know, they generally know the direction it's going in. Yeah, so let's go back a step. You talked about a paid option, like twenty bucks or something like that. What did what was that all about? Yeah, I, I'm gonna have to look into the functionality that comes with that, but <clears throat> I think um, 
it was like Elon Musk had looked or had tweeted at them to understand what the cost was per like query or chat um, or prompt, uh, just understanding like the general cost structure of running chat GPT. Um, but yeah, they're, they're coming up. I think there's even a, another pricing option. Let me actually pull it up and we can share it as well. So um, yeah, I actually looked into this because we're, I was looking at ChatGPT to integrate with. We've been using it pretty extensively to test out how it can generate content similar to what we might want to provide to our users. So I was actually looking at what it would cost to make it available. Um, and it's a pretty low pricing tier. They do like some obfuscated kind of like token model where it's like a number of calls and things like that. But um, from what I looked at, it did not look too expensive as an integration option. So that was something that we were, that we are looking into. Um, and the chat GPT versus Bard thing is very interesting. It feels like a first mover versus Google thing. Um, and Google has a pretty good track record uh, doing the fast follow, if you will. So um, good to hear that Google stock is down. I'll probably buy it because it's on sale today. <laughs> so I'm still very uh, optimistic about Google's ability to do machine learning and AI in any function, especially this one. So I think what's most interesting is these fine-tuned models options that OpenAI provides. Like I think that's where companies are going to start to see um, really interesting use cases on top of ChatGPT. A lot of these big, you know, corporations are thinking of like, how are we going to utilize this technology? And some of the tooling vendors are already, I think it was Dataiku had already incorporated like these fine-tuned models that you can basically add your own training data to it and create the search type functionality on top of documentation, which, um, you know, any kind of customer service knowledge base type of uh, element of a company that they're interfacing with consumers that can take advantage of that. Let's unpack that on some of the thoughts we have around enterprise use cases, because I know early on people were just playing with content creation related to text, images, videos, and that was kind of the fun consumer level side of what ChatGPT can do, but ultimately that's just scratching the surface. So what have you guys seen related to actual enterprise use cases or what direction do you think enterprises could go in to actually get value from something like a ChatGPT? Yeah, I think at first it's going to come in in the form of like products. So like Sakota has got a beta um, that they're going to be releasing around this, that they're currently releasing around this. It's not ahead of the website for me saying this, but basically I think a lot of tooling functionality will come in. Like I know Notion has concepts like this around generative AI for documentation. Sakota is following a similar pattern. So I imagine that's the first kind of landing point is going to be very tailor-made products that leverage this sort of AI. And then from there, I do think you'll find a similar pattern where vendors come in to help enterprises do this the first time, but they're still going to need to maintain the models over time, which I think is really where we see a lot of, even if companies are working with an AI vendor to help them getting started, they still need to create those capabilities inside of themselves to be able to maintain it over time. So like as they keep tuning that model, as they keep feeding that model new data, they're gonna be need to be able to adjust and work with it over time. I think this creates a really, really fascinating paradigm for these companies on what their thought process is around AI. This is something that we had a hunch on earlier this year that we had talked about, which was what is the general trend of trying to develop versus interface with these types of systems? And so I think for a long time, you know, at least in the last like, I don't know, six, seven years, companies have tried to double down into the space, hire data science teams, get all the technology to support it, build their own models internally. There's some that have been 
commoditized and, you know, they're integrated into these technologies that they're getting subscriptions to so that they don't have to actually build their own chatbots, for example. Um, and this is just another example of one of those interfaces that they're going to have an option to um, utilize inside of their business. And so I think that's also a really fascinating trend is like them trying to figure out, do we try to build stuff internally? When do we stop trying to build stuff internally? Do we have our own research teams focus on things like this? Do we even want to spend our time, you know, building certain elements around AI if a lot of that development and research is happening much faster outside of their organizations and they can leverage that in some way? I think there's a lot of risk that they're going to have to start to evaluate. Like, what does this mean? I know there's a couple of companies we've talked to who have said, do not use ChatGPT for anything. Don't feed it any information because of security issues. Um, and so I think that's also pretty fascinating. I think the IP um, component of this is going to be really fascinating. And I, I guarantee legal and, and all of these different functions inside of the large enterprise are starting to dig into this a little bit. Yeah, because that's the build versus buy debate around the governance side is whenever you buy a thing, you bring an external, you worry. And for folks who don't understand how it works, how do they get a comfort level around the information that we're putting into here is not getting released or stored somewhere else that could hurt us at the end of the day too. But I feel like something like this is very much a buy move. There's no way a traditional enterprise can catch up outside of Google in terms of building their own, whereas Microsoft took the move to buy. Um, but I wonder how this will split into other use cases where it just does advance much faster than enterprises can keep up. So they just buy more and more, but it's about that integration and that governance. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point because in the build by kind of trade-offs, right? My understanding of these models is they require a lot of data to kind of initialize that they're trained on very large data sets. That's why they're able to do such a wide range of functions. So it gets really interesting in the enterprise because that's always been a strong driver of the build argument versus buying from an external source is that it's our data. We can't put it outside of our walls, right? So I think that becomes really interesting, especially as you look at these fine tune models, like how are they going to manage that relationship of the external world versus the internal world, how to fine tune it to our most specific use cases and needs, especially given governance and security and all the other things that enterprises think about first and second. So. Yeah, for sure. And I think what's interesting too is like, GPT is trained on massive text data sets, especially GPT-3. So if you look at the data sets that it utilized while it was training or that they utilized while they were training the, those models, you know, the latest has an enormous data set um, based off of a lot of like Wikipedia and um, Reddit that they use crawlers to get, you know, uh, text data from. And I think those foundational models are going to be great to interface and build on top of. Like if we're a bank and we have our own banking data um, and we have all of this text that we can kind of tune a baseline foundational generative model on top of, I think that's what we're going to start to see in terms of um, large organizations leveraging something that's already got this pretty solid foundation. Oh, so it's a starter and then make a bit of your own custom Frankenstein specific to your order by building on top of it. 100%. Yeah. It is interesting. I think every, I think every single like corporate ventures group is like thinking about how to leverage this and, and how to be the first mover in their industry to leverage this in a, in a least risky sense, you know? 
I do think this sense of Google getting kind of in trouble and losing market value just due to the wrong answer is such an interesting way that us as a population are putting AI up on a pedestal because, okay, they put a tweet out with a certain example around here's false information. But at the end of the day, the people corrected and NASA corrected and gave the right information. And at the end of the day, a hundred million people still viewed this tweet and got the right answer to an interesting question. So I want to- Yeah, thank you actually, I just a point on that. Like I read Cassie Kazakov's, um blog on this. She did like a whole thing on demystifying chat GPT and her entire like sentiment behind the blog. The first part of it was like, generated by chat gpt so you're reading it and you're like believing all the things in the blog as you go through it and then you get to the end and you're like and she kind of exposes that in the blog and basically the moral of her story is like it's going to get really really hard to deter to distinguish bullshit from not bullshit and it's it's going to get worse so fact checking i think is going is has been a huge topic of conversation over the last couple of years for sure but it's probably going to get worse. And I've seen some people on Twitter talking about how they're trying to address this and build models on top of ChatGPT to even like predict which ones are real text, like real blogs versus fake blogs. And, you know, I know we've seen a lot of this too with video, deep fakes, you know, um, and it, it's just, it's going to be a very fascinating, fascinating kind of societal situation. Yeah, to pick up that thread, uh, me and Nick were talking about it when ChatGPT, it seemed like it came not out of nowhere. So, you know, OpenAI has been around for a while, but it did really burst onto the scene quite quickly. We were talking about it over the holidays. That was the topic of the conversation in my family. My aunt's a teacher. And we were talking about, like, how do you check for plagiarism? And the thing that really blew my mind using ChatGPT is you give it the same problem twice. It gives you two answers. So you can't really even go back and copy paste check that that's what chat GPT generated. I think there was a New York times article, like a couple of weeks ago, that is exactly that. Like how to student, like how to schools and educators like define their relationship with this thing. I think it's super interesting too, because it's not only like how do you prevent plagiarism or like faking it, but is this just a new tool in the tool belt? Right. It's like a very high powered calculator. Like do we let them use it? Do we not let them use it? Like it's one of those same trade-offs of like, how do we define how we're going to use this technology going forward. Yeah. Is it all doom and gloom or is it a tool that's helping us be more productive at the end of the day? And is the new rule that we adopt as a society is still putting a tag note of generated in co-development with this bit of AI, just like we call out references to other authors that we quote. Yeah. I, you know, it's a generative tool. I think people are kind of forgetting that, like, or at least if you don't have an understanding of the under the hood, like basics, it is generating something from nothing. Like it's not referencing actual text. It is literally generating it. So I think that's the hard part in terms of, we talk a lot about transparency and auditability and how companies need to have that in place too. It was a big topic of conversation at the Data Connect conference last year as well. Like, are we going to start seeing regulations around you're interfacing with some system as a consumer? And it has a legal obligation to tell you that AI is behind it in some way, shape or form. And here's what it created for you. And Here's how you can understand why it did what it did. And I think the scary part is like, in some cases, we don't know why it's doing what it's doing. And I think that's kind of the hesitancy to double down on it. I think the fallacy that we as a society have as well is we, again, to my point, put AI up on this pedestal and expect it to be 100% right by itself. Whereas I think of it more as a partner. It's a generative partner where 
you see all of these issues where Teslas are crashing because humans are napping at the wheel. It wasn't intended for that. It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human and work together to reduce safety. And I think the same thing applies here where the AI is going to generate content, but the humans should work to filter it and add to it as well and just get to more valuable information at the end of the day instead of putting AI up as a separate thing that we're competing against and expecting it to be 100% right at the time. Yeah, a fortune put on brainstorm AI in December in San Francisco. And that this was like right when everything dropped. And so everybody was like losing their minds a little bit about this advancement that that we've seen in terms of performance of the generative model, um, the the large language model that they created, but like their entire sentiment was calling it a co-pilot. I mean, that's exactly what they were calling it. You know, this is a co-pilot, and and in fact like the code generator tool is called co-pilot. Co I mean, they're really pushing that narrative and I think it's the right narrative to push, but I also think that we're gonna have to train people on how to interface with these systems effectively. And there's even new roles getting generated like a prompt engineer where, you know, you know if you've played with ChatGPT, you, you would know that the way you structure your prompt into ChatGPT determines what you're going to get out of it and understanding what core elements you need to engineer the prompt to get out of it what you need to get out of it is also very important. And so we're going to start to see a rise of individuals who can interface with these systems and understand how to do that really effectively. This news cycle is three months old, but it's like it's created a new class of people in a role that they can fulfill at an organization view. And that's the question I want to bear organizations and enterprise specifically, how do they even keep up? This stuff came out three months ago and now it's already a major tool that people can compete with. So how do you even, the hiring process takes typically three to six months to get somebody to support something like this. So how can enterprises even keep up? Is it net new roles? Is it cross-scaling? I don't know, what are we seeing out there? Yeah, I imagine you'll have to go through a similar adoption curve that all new technologies do. So there'll be a period of piloting, improving the value. They'll be answering all these governance questions, all that security piece. So there will be some time to catch up. That's why I think the initial adoption will happen around tools that are purpose-built for specific use cases that come from outside vendors that have this generative under the hood. And then I think from there, they'll try to start standing up their own capabilities to, again, do more of those kind of like purpose-built, fine-tuned models for their use cases. Um, and that piece is going to be a struggle um, for teams to find that talent as it's getting stood up. But again, I think there's a great opportunity there to be innovative, to be able to get ahead of this curve as well. Um, so I expect a lot of enterprises, especially to leverage like their innovation teams um, and other functions to try to find early success with this and answer those kind of hard governance questions. And then from there, I think they'll start seeing broader adoption and scaling. And of course, training and a lot of educational components will be coming out and being integrated more and more into how the businesses are working around this. Yeah, I think the other thing people forget about too is like GPT-1, I think they started like working on that in 2018. So like, this is definitely not something that happened overnight. Um, it happened very quickly, but it's definitely not. I think that the layers of abstraction, like this interface of something that's very tangible that you can touch, that anybody can like go to and interact with, uh, including what is it called Lenza or something the the image generation tool um, you know same thing there and and Dolly you know these turn it, it it's pretty simple like 
conceptually interfacing with some of these elements, but it's really just that abstraction to this model and, and something they've been working on for a really long time. And I think what's also very fascinating too is just following some of these folks um, as uh, who are a part of OpenAI and just understanding their general stance on what they're building and their vision for what they're building. And I think companies should follow that, lean into that and track that and have folks inside of their organization who are, you know, getting up to speed and educated on this. Yeah, because I have friends who have heard of it now that it's hit mass appeal, but haven't even touched it or worked with it. They're almost afraid to touch it and get burned by it in that way too. Convince me that, because I think we're all kind of biased that this is inherently a good thing. Is there any points that people are making around why this is inherently a bad thing for people's job security, for enterprise competitiveness? What's the other side of it? What are the cons of this thing coming out? Yeah, this is always a great topic. Um, we did a pitch competition over the summer in, in Columbus and somebody asked us on stage in front of everybody. So it's always a, a pressing conversation around like, how do we talk about AI? And especially in the context of enterprises, especially with automation that's happening. Um, and I think the automation story has been happening in technology for a long time. So it's just a continuation into the new version of that, right? <clears throat> um, and with that in mind, you know, the main point I return back to all the time and the answer is like, okay, we can free humans up for a higher level activity, right? So we can definitely work on harder problems than what a lot of chat GPT is going to be able to automate. I think chat GPT is kind of a scarier advancement because it does go closer and closer into more like what we view to be human work, right? More creative, more writing, more complex stuff. Um, but complexity has always been kind of the way those advancements have gone, like maturity around uh, what they're able to automate and what they're able to do. So I think there's definitely the fear around this automation. What's the impact on jobs? Um, how you manage like how this model learned across a large training data set? Like how does that ownership play out? Like what happens if my work was used to generate some of this? So I think there's a lot of interesting questions that companies are going to have, or that we're all going to have to handle in the AI space around what does this impact on people's job security? What does this impact on intellectual property? And that's all the scary stuff you need to navigate as you bring in a massively new technology. But of course, very optimistic that the rewards outweigh the risks on this. The pros are definitely stronger than the cons and the opportunities it creates are massively transformative for how we work. Yeah, I've talked to so many sales and marketing folks who are just like, oh, thank God this wasn't around in the beginning of my career. <laughs> like, you know, people are really, I mean, it is spooking a lot of copywriters, artists, um, even people in sales. You know, it's changing the way people are doing outbound sales, copywriting um, for those campaigns. So it's like, there's a lot of potential impact here, a lot that's already starting to happen. There's companies like copy.ai that can write blog posts for you already. You know, there people are moving fast on this. And I think I think we're gonna, as always, technology is gonna outpace the kind of ethical and you know, global ramifications. And we're gonna have to bump into a couple of things, and you just kind of hope that what we're bumping into isn't, you know, irreversible and, um, and, and that people again at the helm are being conscious of this and are aware of this and understand what guide, you know, what guardrails to put in, in place. Um, and thankfully there's a really strong 
ethics community in the AI space really, really strong. Um, and, you know, they're constantly monitoring things like this, putting together um, frameworks around these types of advancements. Like I think NIST just released um, a framework around, you know, ethics and and risk, risk management, I guess I should say, uh, in the AI space. And so I, I do think we can try to keep up um, but I, I don't think that it's reasonable to say that we should be halting the speed of innovation. Um, I think we should just work really, really hard to continue understanding potential implications of it and building the framework around it. I think that that's the biggest aspect that has people shook is they always assumed automation was going to take the boring, monotonous kind of high frequency tasks, but then as soon as we see album art that's AI generated hitting shelves, as soon as we see shoe lines that designers from Nike are using just to test out looks, we thought the creative space was safe, but inherently with all of this coming out, there's so many new creative directions that people are taking it. And that's where, yeah, I think people are most shook is the creative aspect. The human side of what we thought was safe is not anymore to be dramatic about it. Yeah. Yeah, and I throw a controversial thought out there. Uh, where was the outrage around truck, truck drivers, right? Where was the outrage around factory workers? Like it was definitely a resistance there, but you know, this has been happening in multiple spaces for a while. And I think it's more, like you said, like the more human aspects around creativity and white collar work that people are getting a little bit more up in arms about with the chat GPT, but this kind of progression has been happening elsewhere in other industries that affected different types of work. So it's not anything new in a way. It's new in a way, but not new in a way. So I think the generational impact is new because when you think of traditional manufacturing workers or, or truck drivers, it's a generation before us, maybe not necessarily millennials or the early state millennials, but now that it's hitting our own generation plus generations behind us and what they're working on, I think it gets that much more real. The people who are talking well, about so, are Yeah, it's hitting a lot of free, freelancers. Like they're starting to free freak out like well I've got the freelancer life I mean we've been moving towards this like creator freelancer um, marketplace kind of economy now for the last I don't know three years definitely um, longer but we've seen a lot of acceleration around it in the last three years and a lot of that work is like creative work that can be outsourced and the trend of something that can do that again outsourced but it's AI now I think it's rattling a lot of people because that's they made that leap in this massive trend of having your own, you know, going out on your own and and being a creative. Having to be competitive as your own company now. Yeah, I see commercials for Fiverr on TV all the time now that I would have never seen four years ago. It, it is such a, those two coming together is an excellent point, Reagan, around just, yeah, how it's impacting people's living and makes them want to reconsider kind of their career path with these new functionalities. Yeah, with all the layoffs in tech recently, too, I think it's also going to be a very fascinating ecosystem. And I know we're talking more about the creator side, but um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of change happening in these large organizations and tech organizations as well in terms of workforce reduction and correcting for the overhiring that we saw for the last couple of years as well. And I think that's also going to have a massive impact because a lot of those people, those technologists who are getting laid off or leaving their companies, you know, this is going to be a really, really interesting time of companies that are getting started, like startups that are getting created out of this entire ecosystem and all this advancement with 
uh, generative AI and what you can build on top of it. I think we're going to see some really, really interesting companies and tools, um, including ours, of course, <laughs> that spawn out of this like big, you know, movement. I think we should talk about that because that's certainly lots of people's jobs are getting impacted right now. And I think, of course, it's so unfortunate with every single case that the person's livelihood and their job is getting impacted by these layoffs. What are your guys' reflections on it? I've heard some folks talk about it as a bit of correction in terms of there was so much unsustainable growth just in the past couple of years. This is a bit of a re reverberating back to the norm. I've also heard other folks, folks talk about it as early signals of a recession, but economists also say that recessions are kind of self-fulfilling prophecies as if we're constantly talking about them, they're bound to happen. So wanted to get your guys' macroeconomic scale reflections around the round of layoffs that we're seeing just in the past six months. Yeah, I think it's strange because it sounds like the word on the street from the folks in the more traditional businesses is that they're still going strong. Like I saw an article today in the news that was like restaurants are like back to pre-pandemic is like the pull quotes they were having people say like people were saying. I know my dad works in construction in Ohio, so it's like pretty uh canary in the mine for recessions and they're still strong. I've heard trucks are moving through Laredo, Texas, going back and forth pretty strong. So it sounds like the traditional pieces of the economy are still very prosperous. So I think it's really hard to tell, especially not being an economic, like an economist to say like where it's actually going, but it does seem strange that it is so isolated to tech or not isolated, but so heavily felt inside of tech that it does feel like a correction, especially given how quickly that whole appetite changed because everybody was hiring everybody they could nine months ago, six months ago. It was, a, it was a very short time ago. And now here we are with massive layoffs. So it does feel like there was overspending, over hiring. And now this is an adjustment. It's just hard to tell if that's like, if it's going to keep going down, then obviously it's a different situation. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I like to follow the layoffs.fyi and I, we can flash up a uh, image of the the data of tech layoffs since COVID-19 and it shows like this really crazy dip. So there's a lot of layoffs right as the pandemic starts. And then starting in Q2 of last year, it starts to pick back up and really ramps up in Q4 and Q1 is the largest in terms of tech layoffs, even including any quarter since the pandemic. So it is absolutely happening. It's not overlaid with how many people were hired in the last couple of years, which I think would be actually very interesting visual um, on how much these companies expanded in two years and then are kind of shrinking back down. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, my entire feed, I feel like every single week I've got tons and tons of people in the tech industry who have been laid off, who I know are very, um, competitive in terms of talent in this space. So it is a really interesting situation that's happening. And I think companies are, um, trying to figure, you know, they're also having retention challenges too, which is really confusing to me. You're seeing a lot of layoffs in these like tech native companies and then you've got, or digital native companies. And then you've got kind of your more legacy companies that are struggling with talent. So like people are still leaving on their own accord as well, which I think is kind of fascinating, like uh, in this particular, you know, environment and, and ecosystem like each year since 2020 has been a pendulum in the opposite direction it's, it's just how it's felt or it's like everyone hunkered down in 2020 now everyone silent quit in 2021 everyone's getting laid off in 2022 it's just 
so many extremes. I'm trying to cut through, am I just paying attention to it more or has it always been this way? That's another thing too, is, is, is this something that of a fallacy if I'm just paying more attention to it? Um, but it just seems like it's been so extreme in the past three years. Yeah, and just to echo something Reagan mentioned, like the fact that the talent that's getting laid off is so competitive, like they're so skilled, right? Like, I feel like that feels weird. I think we're also of the age where we haven't been through a lot of, you know, downturns. We've been in a very strong economy for a long period of time here. So I think it is very interesting to see that trend as well, is that it's not competency-based layoffs. Like there's just a very their large like chunks of departments are being hatcheted away from the business. Um, so that seems kind of strange, I think, compared to most normal economic movement. Yeah, yeah it's it's creating um, a pretty big, I feel like, disruption in initiatives that companies have set out to, to do. I mean, when we saw the pandemic hit, it was interesting because it's right when we started a Align AI and, you know, we saw everybody doubling down in kind of the data and AI space, um, mainly to support all of the rapid changes that were happening operationally. Um, you know, brick and mortars were trying to figure out how to go more digital very, very, very quickly. Um, and they were trying to come up with more intelligent ways and solutions to manage some of those operational changes. Um, and then, you know, we saw it slow down a little bit, but I feel like people have been, or companies have been um, a little bit conditioned in pouring some money into those areas. So it'll be really interesting to see if that corrects this year also in terms of budget, where are we going to see budgets start to slow down? You know, are we going to see it start to slow down in some of these more aggressive, innovative initiatives that they had previously? Um, are you going to try to do more with less and, and double down on kind of the efficiency of what they built out? Um, you know, I'm really curious to see where that trend goes as well. And that's really at the enterprise level, but I also want to bring up the individual level. A lot of research is showing that younger folks are really focusing on upskilling themselves on their own. They see that as a protection in terms of volatility that they might see in their career by constantly learning new information. And even with the generation Z, they're focused less on the classic university track and going through skills and then getting actual skills through modes that, that are more available to them and is in a traditional university to do. So I think that's such an interesting dichotomy around People focus on upskilling to present, protect themselves in their careers, along with enterprises really thinking through skills they need and trying to be more tactical on projects. Yeah, if they're not spending all their time trying to learn TikTok. Right. <laughs> right. I just, yeah, I do think it's very interesting to watch um, that entire educational evolution happening too. I think like we saw obviously a lot of digital options of people trying to learn and, and get upskilled. And, and obviously people had to figure out how to do that from home during the pandemic. So that opened up tons of different avenues of how people learn and, and get new skills. Um, I'm seeing a ton of burnout around that as well. Like people are trying to you know, they've been trying to upskill and, and spend time kind of learning new things over the last couple of years, especially from their computer at home on their own, a lot of self-service, um, you know, options, videos, things to go through. And I, I do see people getting kind of burnt out on that as well. And I think universities are also really scrambling to try to figure out how to adjust this um, entire change in education and how people are consuming information 
Um, we're also seeing, obviously, in general, shorter attention spans from people. And so these like long lecture videos and lectures that, you know, these formats that used to work are not going to really work anymore. Um, and I just think that entire trend is going to be very fascinating to watch as well, like not just for the individual, but how our company is going to continue to evolve um, in terms of what their people know and and the talent they're attracting. Yeah, we hear pretty consistently from companies that they're tired of sending their folks away to an offsite to learn a thing and then having them come back after a short period of time. It's more about learning in the flow of work. It's more about those micro modules you spoke to as well. I don't know if it's a attention span thing. I don't know if they feel like their time to value is shorter inherently too. I think there's still a lot of data that needs collected around what is more effective and what's retained more at the end of the day. Yeah, and I would say that the biggest trend I've noticed working in tech, because everything is so new, um, and every tech challenge is different in its own way. <clears throat> so there's the foundational knowledge you need around the syntax or the language that you're working with and the overall kind of technology. Um, but even this applies to more creative stuff like design. It still feels like you have to learn it on the job to see how they solve those problems in the field. So I think that's where you see more and more of the experiential learning or the hands-on learning to supplement some of that, that more generic training because it is so difficult to learn how to solve each of these unique problems that you'll face in the field because they're never like what you learn in the classroom, right? They're more nuanced because of the people or the reality of the technology involved, especially in data where data is always different. So it's always a unique teaching and learning problem to be presented in analytics. Yeah, great. You went and took an Azure class, but how do you do data ingestion in our specific cloud environment that we have in our organization? That's the big disconnect I keep hearing from folks too. And it seems like there's more and more like apprenticeship almost inside of the jobs where when you get a job, you're almost expecting to be taught hands-on how to do and apply those things. So I think that's the more intentional or the more purpose-driven folks are around that natural kind of exchange that happens. I think that's the companies that really perform well and really excel um, are the ones that really dedicate the time for that onboarding, for that hands-on kind of mentorship and coaching to help people really excel inside of those jobs. I think that really plays into the burnout that you mentioned, Reagan. People feel like they're on an island. They're learning this stuff on their own. There's a big intangible aspect around going and learning at a university, which is a networking exercise. And the partnerships that you build, and even when you're onboarding at a new company, the mentors that you have built in when you learn from them as well. Yeah, I think what's hard is like, this is the most effective way, but it's not the most efficient way. And I think that is the big challenge because think of any highly skilled, super intelligent individual at a company who is like the best of the best, you know, the lead data scientist, the person everybody goes to, they're already super, super burnt out because they're trying to make all this shit work <laughs> inside of their company. And they're also responsible for running a lot of that as well. And then on top of that, they have to train and upskill all of these individuals on their team and spend time with them hands-on time, one-on-one -on -one time, mentorship time, and they're burnt out, extremely burnt out. And then you've got these people who are coming and going because retention is horrible. There was a stat from last year that was like 33% of data scientists left their job in the first half of 2022, which means people are like leaving. And, and then you've got all of these like hiring initiatives as well. And with people coming and going, it's got to be really hard as an individual to really sit down and say, I'm going to spend my time training and, and teaching this individual, not just our industry knowledge, not just, you know, some of the technical fundamentals, but how to do 
this nuanced work inside of this ecosystem that's not fully baked out. And I just think we're in a really like chaotic time for that. So I do agree it like needs a ton of hands-on mentorship type work, but I it's just not super practical. I hear a lot too of organizations not necessarily having a defined career path for their data scientists or their data engineers that come in. It's more of a, hey, we finally got one. Like this is very exciting for us. But then naturally the person is going to want a next step in their career in the organization as well, which a lot of orgs seem to still be figuring out. Agreed. Okay. Another topic I want to bring up as well, if we want to get into it, which is data scientists versus data engineering and how data engineering is much more in vogue today. We can talk about that. We can talk about a different topic. That's great. Let's talk about data engineering, data science. I love it. That's one of my faves. Okay. I It's so, so funny, the general trend that is happening there. Like it was all the rave to be a data scientist and now people can't find enough skilled data engineers. Like it is right back to where we were focused on data. Yeah, so rewind for me, for the folks who are less familiar, when was data scientists in vogue? What was their like peak years in terms of like people scrambling for them and wanting them? Let's say we felt it, at least we noticed it most often in, in the enterprise, right? So enterprise are a little bit different, it's a little bit slower, but we noticed a lot of push around that probably like five or six years ago, I'd say, um, and even further back. But that's when it seemed like they were trying to really push that. And then MLOps came very quickly thereafter. Well, obviously we're biased because we've been working very heavily in the MLOps space, but at least that's the, the trend that I saw was like, we need data scientists. Now we got models and notebooks. Now we need to put them into production to show value. That's where MLOps came up. So I think this data engineering piece coming in now is interesting because <laughs> one, I wonder how much it's like the concept of machine learning engineering or some of the stuff that's covered in the scope of MLOps. I wonder if there's any like kind of cross terms there because that happens a lot in analytics. Um, but I also wonder if it's too, they put the models in production, the models didn't do well because the underlying data pipelines aren't strong enough to really support production grade software. Um, I've heard from data engineers themselves that they like working in data engineering because there's not as much rigor as their software engineering counterparts. So they like to go to data engineering because it's a little bit more loosey-goosey, if you will. Um, so I think that's where we're seeing a lot more push around data engineering because one, the data is being used more often. And then two is being used more often in production grade systems. Um, and that's where we're seeing a lot of this kind of focus. But I do think a lot of it is also the machine learning engineering skill set of like building a pipeline around a production grade model. And I'm curious to see how that terminology evolves as we start talking more about like REST based models or on demand models and streaming models. Like, I wonder if that will still fall on the data engineering wheelhouse because that's more today, tra traditionally like batch processing, ETL kind of work. So I'm curious to see how that terminology evolves because it changes every year. So that's fun. <laughs> I think there's some wild macro trends that we've observed over time. For a long time, it was big data, Hadoop, you know, that it was like, how do we get all of this data stored and processed and available? And everybody was just, the enterprise organizations were just obsessed with it. Like, you know, how, how do we do that? And that was for a decent amount of time. And then, you know, that Harvard, I think it was a Harvard like article and maybe it wasn't, but it was like the sexiest job of whatever year it was, I don't know, 2015 maybe. And then after that it was like the biggest boom of everyone wanting to be a data scientist. It was wild. And 
then universities are trying to catch up and create degree programs for it and micro degree programs for it and certifications and all of the online education kind of blew up and you've got all these people from academia trying to get into industry because of it. So there's all this massive wave of data scientists and then they would land at these companies and then they would be like, all right, cool, I'm going to build some models now. And the company was like, uh, actually, you need to sift through all of this data and like try to find something that's useful. And they're so then they were doing a bunch of data engineering work <laughs> like most of their time. And everybody complained about like 80% of my job is just like shoveling through crappy data, you know, and that was a long period of time of that. And then and then everybody started getting their, you know, act together and getting data cleansed and organized, even if it was like one little silo inside of the company. And then they started seeing models get produced and start to work and very, very simple models, but nonetheless, like, hey, it's working. We're building something. We're using predictions to make decisions. This is great. And then we went back to, now we've got to keep expanding these use cases and our data still sucks. And then we see this massive explosion of the modern data stack and, you know, including a big, explosion around data catalogs, finding data, making sure it's clean, these data observability tools, and we're right back to where we were, which is like, your model is going to suck if you don't have good data. So I think there's just been this natural swing, like make it all available, let's see what happens. Okay, data scientists, try to make something interesting. I can't because the data sucks and now we're right back to fix the data again. Yeah, at least the projects I've been on, it's like, the data science part is so hard and like data engineering is tough because you really got to like pull the data apart and put it into the right format and all that, which is a struggle. Um, but compared to like the statistical rigor that comes, I think that's also where people are also spending more dollars on the data engineering side because they can impact the performance of the model without a path or a math stats PhD. Cause that's also the big trend in data science is now we have, many more libraries available. We can throw models at it and to see what works. Um, caveat, caveat, if you should do that or not. Um, but in general, that seems to be a trend that people are pursuing. Uh, I would advise against personally having worked with math and stats PhDs, uh, how I recommend them. Um, but people are starting to also get into this, like I'll throw TensorFlow at it and then I'll make a really robust pipeline underneath it. And then the business performance will be strong. So let's go forward with that. <laughs> Is it incorrect to say that the barrier to become a data engineer is inherently lower than becoming a data scientist? Like, 100%. is it easier? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the that's a softball question. I mean, my first job out of now, granted, I had you know a lot of internships, experience, engineering degree, whatever. But my first job out of college was a data engineer. You know, I was learning Python, I was building pipelines and Alteryx. I was, I mean, it is more basic logic, right? You're looking at kind of, there is some statistical testing maybe you want to do to the underlying data um, to make sure that there are certain quality elements to the data, but it really is more basic logic, transformation, cleansing. Um, the hardest part's like the contextual element of it, trying to understand where the data is coming from, making sure it's stored properly, mm -hmm. it has the right context, uh, but it is fundamentally much easier to do data engineering functions in my opinion, or my experience, I should say, there's probably way more complicated elements of data engineering that I'm not touching on. Um, but if we break it down to its core, like in terms of entry point, I think it's much easier. Yeah, and like one line I would draw around data engineering to 
point to the harder work, which I would call data architecture, because we work with really good data architects and like that is high level software engineering at a point of like laying out these systems. It gets easier and easier every day, given the number of tools that are out there, which is awesome. Um, but it is still like high performing data pipelining is very difficult. Um, but I would put that almost in the architecture bu bucket, data engineering of like ripping pipelines together and cleaning up data that is much more approachable work for most folks. And then I would point to the fact that like data science, like I think the thing I'm always impressed about working with data scientists is they're on the hook to pick the best model, right? Which not only means they need to understand this like one pattern that they've seen work before, but they need to be able to evaluate a large number of opportunities against each other. And not only does that know mean knowing a lot of opportunities to solve that problem, but also being able to evaluate them like statistically robustly do training data strategies. Like there's a lot more like unknowns, it feels like in data science where data engineering is like, here's raw, bad data. I turned it into useful, good data versus like what's a bad model versus a good model. Depends on the, you know, nature of the residuals. And, you know, there's a lot more things that go into that, which makes it a lot more challenging. Yeah, I was just having this conversation with a data scientist at an event this past week. And we were talking about this general trend of like, highly, highly, highly specialized statisticians in particular fields that just knew the field inside and out and data was a part of the field of doing research. Like that's just what came with it naturally. Like you kind of started there and then we moved into this like massive generalized data scientist where I could be a consultant and I could work in finance and then manufacturing and then, you know, you name it. And I could pick up the business case or the problem space fairly quickly um, and now we're kind of leaning a little bit further into like, no, you need to understand the domain deeply because of those implications. Like it's very nuanced in terms of the system that this model is going to plug into. And when you're talking about good model versus bad model, well, a lot of that's contextual and dependent, highly dependent upon the scenario in which the model is being built for. And so we're also expecting data scientists, these general data scientists to like be also experts in all of these domains that they're building models against. And, you know, that's really, really challenging. Or we're expecting business folks to understand data science and, you know, deeply enough from a technical perspective to be able to translate things. And, you know, we're seeing people get really, really hung up on that. Yeah, and I'll throw another interesting dimension from a project we're on right now. A model came out of a research arm uh, of an organization and now is being operationalized, deployed into production inside of the business unit. And talk about good model, bad model, they're weighing statistical performance versus time to retrain. And there's just so many variables that go into that equation of what makes a good model, right? Explainability is the other classic one you come into of like neural nets versus other approaches. It's like, there are so many dimensions that go into picking a good model. I think that's where the data scientist not only needs to be very skilled on the statistical side, but to be able to go back to the business and also talk through it is a skill set that I've seen data scientists be very strong in. My hunch is because they come from academia. So they typically have like a teaching background. So they've been awesome to work with and they're super good at explaining stuff. Uh, they explain things very well. We say that in a better grammar, but uh, basically <laughs> it's been great working alongside data scientists because they take very complex topics and break them down into very approachable uh, things, but they do have a lot of variables that they need to maximize for um, as they're trying to solve business problems with data and statistics. That just reminds me, and it seems like data engineers are having a harder time with this. The tech native companies I talk to really emphasize you as a data engineer need to understand the business context and inherently prioritize what you work on based on what the business needs. 
I'm hearing over and over again, data engineering teams are really struggle one to build and ship code that can be picked up by somebody else. So their annotations around it, their commentary around it does not make it so another engineer can pick it up and run with it. There's inherent confusion around that. But then also, like in any engineering function, they almost stay at their desk more and they don't want to get out and understand the business priorities to prioritize what they work on as well. So that's you mentioning that about data scientists just reminded me that I'm hearing that across data engineering teams too. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, data truly is a representation of the system, the environment, which is capturing information about, right? Like that, that is true. And so if you're trying to understand accuracy of data, you have to understand like, what system and processes is data representing? And that's not intuitive. You know, um, we were working with one customer and it was a physical object, like a vehicle, right? And so we're like, oh, this information is being pulled from this vehicle. And and in what way are, is it doing that? Like it pulls into the station, there's Wi-Fi, it trans, you know, transmits to the cloud via Wi-Fi from the vehicle, the hardware. Like you have to understand all the nuances of how the data is being collected and what it represents in order to use it properly, clean it properly, check for quality issues properly. And I think we're getting removed from that a little bit, which is a challenge. So we've seen a shift from data stewards to data, or sorry, data scientists to data engineers. I would argue that there's still underrepresented roles like data stewards. Is there anything, any roles you guys think are underrepresented or not being focused on? Oh, I'll yell product management all day long. Say product management. I think we're so biased though, Brendan. Well, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I would say like I've seen more business analysts recently, especially at the larger enterprises, which is when we say product management, it's a similar skill set. It's different, but it's similar. Um, yeah. like they address similar problems. So I think there is growing representation in that. We're also hearing more of like AI translator roles coming in to try to help with some of those pieces. Um, we are, of course, heavily biased though. And I, I think the one that's missing the most and the, the LinkedIn is always blowing up about at least my feed is like data contracts. So I think like that's the data stewardship stuff. That's like, how do we own and drive data quality? Like I think data management, data governance stuff is starting to understand the need for that kind of business level alignment and the data stewards are going to be there to help with that kind of push. Um, but I think that data contract concept and really how to like operationalize that inside of the business, I think is going to be the next interesting saga of the data management, data governance conversation. Do we think there will be model stewards at some point? Oh, definitely. For sure. Yeah. So I wonder if there to, are. So expand on that. So speaking to each individual models, if they are the person to go to, if you have a question about the model or if there's an issue you've seen in the model. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like data is captured. You're like, oh, okay. I'm in marketing or I'm in sales and I understand our CRM. If I'm in sales and I know what all of these things mean and I know the logic behind it think about the same thing like if you're saying this model is driving actual business value for your organization it's creating predictions and triggering actions and you know those actions have implications to the business like why wouldn't there be somebody i mean today we're just making we're just like forcing data scientists to be that person but should we i, just, I, I think the whole efficiency game around ai and machine learning is free up the data scientists to do more data science right and that is where MLOps is a thing. And I think where people 
are finding out is that they don't want their data scientists managing the business context around an existing model. They want them building a new model, right? So I think that's where you'll see more and more. And I think we've heard a little bit of that um, more and more as like, how do we enable the business to really effectively manage this, to understand like what data drift is, what model drift is, to really understand how the model's working. So it's not just this black box that data science throws over the fence so they can go to the next one or get dragged back <laughs> while they're trying to work on the next one, but more of how can we really effectively hand this off to the business. So I hope model steward becomes a term that people get hyped about because that would be nice. Let's coin it now and say Reagan Avon. <laughs> 2022. <laughs> Guaranteed it exists somewhere. But yeah, it just came out of my mouth. I don't know why. I just feel like there's, you know, we talk a lot about this too, like legacy companies. And this is this function is a is a like they latched it onto the side. They were like, oh, and this, you know, that I mean, this is not some of them are getting making it fundamentally part of their operations. Like it's driving revenue, it's driving cost efficiencies. That is a competitive advantage a lot of companies still are not there. Um, and I think what's so interesting about that is that they're kind of nice to haves. Like even if you look at the budget structure of a company, it, it reflects in the budget structure of the company. It's still a nice to have. Um, and I think because of that, there aren't these like significant detailed roles and focus areas around making these teams more efficient um, because there's not as much pressure like it's still getting integrated into the fabric. And so, you know, when something goes down operationally, that's going to take precedence all day long. Um, they, it's still seen as, to me, culturally in a lot of companies as a research initiative, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that the fact that data steward is coming out and people are treating data like a really solid asset in the company, I think it's great. I really, really hope that these intelligence layers that people are building inside of the organizations get to that point too, because today, like if they go down, they go down or they're just not even automated. So it's batch anyway. And if it doesn't run or it's a week late or a month late, whatever, you know, I, I think that's a very key indicator of that. Very similar to how OpEx was kind of treated in the past 20 years in terms of a shared service or nice to have. It's great if we get efficiency improvements, but it's not business critical in that way. 100%. I will say one last hot take on this because we're coming up on the hour. The variation in titles I see, data science evangelist, uh, just, it's, they're, they're not really well-defined across organizations around who does what. So I think they're kind of picking their own words or defining their own words I've talked to people who've defined their own title related to this and the company said, sure, let's run with it. So I want to hear if you guys have heard any zany job titles related to data that are vastly different from others. Oh, I don't have, I don't have any good ones off the cuff. I was just going to say, it's like, they're all made up. Like it's, you can tell people are coming up with it as I go. They're like, I got some weird new stuff that I have to do. And here's what I'm going to call myself as I do that. Yeah. It's a lot of like, oh, I'm going to differentiate here. Or you know what? Tooling vendors do this a ton. Like oh. sometimes they're incentivized to like create a new role. Well, we're creating this new paradigm and it has to have a new role and here's the role and we're going to be a you know category creator. Um, uh, you know, that, that happens a lot too. And that influences a lot of this. Um, I think people are trying different things also. It's still a massive org chart experiment. You know, I don't think we're going to see any solidification in that in the next like 10 years, to be quite honest, like it's still going to jump around. Um, I was very skeptical of like the citizen data scientist role 
and still don't even think I know what that means, to be honest. <laughs> so I think there's like, I think if you're looking at roles and responsibilities, it's so much easier. And I know we struggle with this a ton too, because every single company we talk to calls the same thing, something different. Like, oh no, we don't call it that, or we don't have that, or, and, and it's so protective to like, no, we call it this. And it's like, okay, great. I understand language is super important, but when you're bouncing from company to company, it's just the inconsistencies are really interesting. Even within steward, I see technical steward versus business steward being two different roles. I haven't had so many terminology conversations in my career up until this past year around all these different roles. Only somebody would create a product that would make it easy to customize for your company's roles. Oh, <laughs> that would be so nice. <laughs> well, you know what the ironic thing that I've always said about this too is like mathematicians if and statisticians, if you ever talk to them, man, terminology and definitions are number one. Like yeah. they don't start any conversation with you unless you have the exact same definition for a word as they do to make sure you are saying the exact same thing as they are. And I just kind of love that. Like, I think that's super fun. And the fact that kind of ironically, this whole space is just like terminology is everywhere. It means the different things to the same, like even AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. Like you could look up the definition of AI and one company has a different definition than the other, which is kind of crazy. So I like, I just find that all to be very interesting. Oh yeah. There's old data engineering. Now there's advanced data engineering. Like there's some sets within roles and what they're working on too. And trying to say just on the cutting edge because it does evolve with the tool stack year over year. Nice. Anything else you guys want to talk about? Well, I don't even know how we're going to have a next episode because we covered so much stuff. Yes. Yeah. We just <laughs> like, we our, like top list things we want to talk about. Once a year. <laughs> An annual podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the rage. <laughs>